You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. All right. Hey, guys. Oh, oh, God. oh my God, your whole life is in here. <laughs> yeah, Do you oh. know what it is? There's the playbill. Oh, my God. DVD. Oh, it's not on DVD, is it? No, it certainly is not. <laughs> There's Dream Girls. Oh. <laughs> oh, here we go. Videotape. Two of them. Oh! oh my god! Oh, we didn't even bother to rewind it. <laughs> we must have just stopped halfway. <laughs> got what we came for. You ready for this? I think so. Oh my god, what if it doesn't work? It better still work. Okay. I get stuck! Better not, this was like gold dust. Oh my god. <gasps> <gasps> oh, Lindsay! Oh my god! watch this any day I want on YouTube now. There's something about watching it on the video, is there? It's... I think it's just looking at it to like copies and copies of copies. Yeah. It's blurry. I still, I still remember the first time we ever watched it. She knows. Thousands of voices forever Chapter 1. From Page to Stage. Welcome to Out for Blood, a new unofficial podcast taking a deep dive into Carrie the Musical. I'm Chris. And I'm Holly. It's been called Broadway's greatest flop. It closed early, losing $8 million in just two weeks. And sure, on the strength of the source material, many might be tempted to say, I told you so. It is, after all, the unlikely tale of a killer telekinetic teen. This murderous musical, based on a Stephen King novel, was originally produced by the Royal Shakespeare Company and written by the team behind the movie Fame. You know, just a classic combo. you got yeah. Peaches and Cream, Sugar and Spice, the Royal Shakespeare Company and the creators of Fame. A high school horror in which all but one of the characters is dead by the final curtain, with reviews as shocking as the material. On Stephen King's scary novel and movie Carrie, Pat Collins is here now with a review to tell us if this show's going to scare us right out of our $50 seats. What about it, Pat? Well, Jen and Van, Stephen King's horror movie has been turned into a horror of a Broadway musical. The only thing terrifying about Carrie is that there's a second act. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We've got plenty of time to talk about those killer reviews. We will be taking you through the epic journey that is the story of Carrie, from the birth of an idea and Carrie's earliest workshop outing to the first tentative steps in the beating heart of literary England, plus a full autopsy of the infamous Broadway run. However... As you'll discover, with this remarkable show, there is always life after death, and we'll be covering all the reasons why this show returned in triumph from the musical theatre grave. So, what do people need to know before we set sail on the good ship Carrie? Right, so the show first opened and promptly closed in 1988. Uh, But the stunned reaction of critics and audience members made Carrie instantly legendary. There was even a book about short-lived musicals called Not Since Carrie, which cemented its position in theatre history as the Queen of Flops. There was never an official recording made of the show, but we can still get a sense of the madness through bootleg videotapes. And those videos gave people a peek at how wonderfully weird the show looked and sounded, and created a whole host of urban legends around the show, which 
which kept the myth of Carrie alive over decades. Not least because, until recently, it was the most expensive Broadway flop ever, a record unbroken until the infamous Spider-Man musical over 20 years later. That's a whole other story. Yes, let's not get bogged (laughs) down with Turn Off the Dark. But now, after being buried for all those years, Carrie is having a real comeback. Suddenly, it's one of the most performed shows in American high schools, and there's even been an episode of Riverdale based on it. Yes, Netflix algorithm, two early millennials are now watching Riverdale. What of it? So, how did this horror show of a musical come to be? How was it born? Why did it die? And how was it resurrected so triumphantly? And can all those myths and legends, bizarre rumours and stories, really be true? Was it really so bad that the audience booed when the cast took a bow? Did one of the lead actors nearly get decapitated on opening night? Did the director really misunderstand the brief to make the show more like Grease? As in, you know, Danny and Sandy. And instead, make it more like Grease. As in, you know, tragedy and temples. And so he dressed the cast in togas. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so over the next few weeks, we're going to dig deep. Too deep, maybe? Never, never too deep. We're going to open the archives, dust off our playbills and speak to the people who were really there to find out the truth. We will meet original cast and crew members, some famous fans, and we've even tracked down audience members who still remember their fateful trip to the theatre back in summer 1988 as well as the people involved in bringing Carrie back to life. It's been an adventure, (laughs) and along the way we'll delve into the show's score, remember some key scenes, and look at some of the frankly mystifying design choices, and ask why Carrie's story has lived on all these years. So, if you want to discover how the world's most prestigious Shakespearean theatre company ended up dressing someone in a red unitard while they sang a song about murdering a pig to the guy who played Leroy in Fame then this is the podcast for you. Yeah, watch out, Serial. Stand back, this American life. And as for Holly and I, we discovered Carrie the Musical when we acquired a dusty VHS tape back in the dark ages, sometime in the early 2000s. Now, a VHS to all the Riverdale fans who've joined us was... (laughs) See, I was a big Stephen King fan as a teenager. I read loads of his novels, and in particular, I loved Carrie. And I remember I had a poster for the film on my wall. It said, if you have a taste for terror, take carry to the party now they'd obviously changed the word prom for party because i guess in the 70s british people didn't know what a prom was now a party to all of those who've been quarantining Mm. was i I genuinely can't remember um anyway as we'll find out this is not the last time we'll hear about a british american lost in translation scenario in this series Oh, absolutely not once i got to university i found my tribe in the theater societies and we ended up doing shows together didn't we yes we did bat boy at the edinburgh festival i directed it I was in it. I was one of the leads, actually. That's a pattern that was not to be repeated in my professional performing career. Uh, Now, if a musical about a girl whose first period triggers extrasensory powers sounds a bit out there, I present you with the classic tale of a misunderstood half-bat, half-boy who falls in love with his half-sister. I mean, unsubscribe now if you're not here for this weird musicals chat. Yeah, off you go. Uh, So Chris and I bonded over our love of stupid musical theatre, and you told me about Carrie, sort of like a jazz hands Mr Miyagi. I, I, I mean, I can't help but notice that you're positioning me as much older yeah, than you Yeah, that's quite here. intentional. <laughs> okay, yeah. right. Uh, this was before YouTube, if you can believe that we, I mean, especially I, am that old. You see, there was never an official cast recording of the musical. But I discovered this underground world of carry bootleg video trading. I naively sent off some money in the mail, maybe a cheque from my chequebook. A chequebook. <laughs> Do you remember those? And then remarkably... The VHS actually turned up. And the rest is history. An obsession was born. I've never forgotten the thrill of seeing that weird, weird show for the first time. 
And rediscovering that dusty video cassette years later with nothing else to do in the midst of a global pandemic, Chris and I thought, why not delve deep into the history of this mad musical? Exactly. And here we are. Holly, shall we tell the story of Carrie? I don't see why not. Let's Let's do do it. it. Our story begins in the early 1970s with a young high school teacher by the name of Stephen King, now one of literature's most well-known names. At the time, he was living with his wife Tabitha in a trailer, barely making ends meet and desperately submitting novels and short stories to publishers. I've been writing uh, about Stephen King off and on probably for at least 20 years. Bev Vincent has published several books about Stephen and his work and in 2018 co-edited the horror anthology Flight or Fright with the great man himself. He told us about the early days of Stephen's writing career. His wife was working in a donut shop and one of the things he did to supplement their income was he wrote short stories and he had a pretty successful run of selling these stories to the men's magazines for about $200 each, which in modern dollars... That's almost $2,000. And so, you know, if, if a kid got sick and needed medicine, uh, he'd end up selling a short story and that would help, you know, tide them over. Originally, he saw Carrie as a quick story he could write and sell, earn some extra cash and pay a few bills. But as he started working on it, he realized this thing needs a longer buildup. It needs a bigger burn into the story. And he didn't think, A, that he had the... Um, the knowledge of what teenage girls experienced at that point to really do it justice. And B, he didn't think he had the time to devote to a novel, given that he'd already had two previously rejected ones. So he said, you know, I spend several months on this only for it not to raise any income. So he didn't think it was going to work. So after he had four or five pages of the story written, he decided, nah, I, I just can't do this. And he threw the pages away. Famously, his wife, Tabitha King, found the pages, read them, and encouraged him to continue on with the story. And and when he complained that he didn't think he knew enough about the teenage girl's mentality to do the story justice, she said that she would help him with that. The novel focuses on Carrie White, a teenage misfit, bullied by her peers and abused by her ultra-religious mother, Margaret. The inspiration for the character and her plight came about after he witnessed one of his students being subjected to constant ridicule for wearing the same clothes to school every day. She saved up money, bought a fashionable new outfit, only to be mocked even more by the same students for that one. And she is an outcast from the rest of her class just because she's strange. She, you know, wears strange clothes. She's very quiet, timid. And so she's bullied a fair amount. And in the opening section of the story, she's extensively bullied by her classmates in in the uh, school shower. But there's something unusual about Carrie. So the the interesting thing about Carrie is that she has some latent uh, telekinetic abilities that really emerge when she becomes into her adolescence. And her immersion into adolescence is one of the crucial triggers in the book. Um, And so she discovers that she can move things. Um, She uses this, uh, you know, at, at first maybe to fight off some of her mother's more uh, hostile behavior. Um, But then as everything builds towards this climactic scene at the high school prom, 
Carrie, to her surprise, has been invited to go by the popular and handsome captain of the football team, Tommy Ross. He's a very nice boy. He is. But he's only doing it because he's been persuaded by his girlfriend, Sue Snell, who feels guilty about bullying Carrie in the showers. Meanwhile, the school's chief mean girl, Chris Harginson, sees an opportunity for one final triumphant shaming of Carrie and plots with her boyfriend, Billy, to dump a bucket of pig's blood over her at the prom. It doesn't end well. She goes full-blown telekinetic and wreaks havoc on the prom. Carrie destroys the school, the town, and kills all her jeering classmates in interesting and creative ways using only her mind. I mean, talk about a bad date. I've had worse. Mm, I haven't. Um, Carrie would go on, like most of Stephen King's works, to be frequently adapted. The Count currently stands at two feature films, a TV movie, a terrible sequel, which is worthy of its own podcast, to be honest, and, of course, an ill-fated stage musical. I was reminded the other day that in the TV movie, Carrie survives (gasps) and moves to Florida. (laughs) Can we just take a moment for that? Sorry. (laughs) Can you imagine her down in, like, (laughs) Mar-a-Lago? Skipping back to 1973, a few months before the novel is published, early in his career, the screenwriter Lawrence D. Cohen also known as Larry... Remember that name. He'll be back. ...was working as a reader for the legendary producer David Suskind. He was sent a skinny 200-page manuscript of the novel, and he was immediately blown away. The novel had been a huge success, but Larry saw a life for the story beyond the page. He struggled to generate interest from the big studios in a movie adaptation, but eventually met a producer who was equally keen on the story. Larry was given the job of adapting Carrie for the big screen. It was a game changer for Stephen King. And the movie was such a huge success. Financially, critically, it had two Academy Award nominations. And that really put his name on the map. Bev thinks it's Stephen's vibrant characters that make his stories so memorable and so ripe for adaptation. Everybody's been to high school. Everybody's had a car that broke down. Every teenager has wanted to know some new car so he can drive around. So all of those are relatable. The stories are relatable. The settings are relatable. But for me, it's always been about the characters. Um, He has this insight into humanity, which he manages to capture and then recreate on the page. And these characters are, you know, they're likable, they're credible, they're understandable. Even when they're not likable, you sort of understand where they're coming from. They're not forgettable. They sort of get imprinted on your your mind, even after just a, a single reading or two. In 1981, five years after the release of the movie, Larry and his partner, the composer Michael Gore, went to see a performance of Alban Berg's opera, Lulu. It's a violent and destructive story, ending with the leading lady being murdered by none other than Jack the Ripper. Do they tell you who it is? Because I've always wanted to know. I don't think they do, I'm afraid. Keep keep on looking. (laughs) Michael Gore remarked that if Berg was alive and composing operas today, he would probably make one about Carrie. By this point, Michael had already worked with the lyricist Dean Pitchford on the movie Fame, released in 1980. Together they'd won an Oscar and a Grammy for the title song. Here's Dean to pick up the story. I had been a Broadway baby. You know, I had been, I had grown up, born and raised in Honolulu, but I was raised on all of these cast albums that my mother collected. And then I left and I went to Yale to, because I wanted to be the next Anthony Newley. And I, uh, I, I did 
Godspell before I even got out of college. I was doing Godspell in New York. I went into Pippin in New York. I did the Umbrellas of Cherbourg at the Public Theater. I was singing and dancing in commercials. I knew Broadway backwards and forwards. All of my friends were working all over Broadway. It was in my blood. Dean knew the mechanics of musical theatre inside and out. So Larry and Michael pitched the idea of Carrie the Musical to him. And so they had me over one day. They sat me down. They said, what do you think? And as I've said since then, I thought the idea was, first of all, fantastic idea. I've always loved the book. I loved the movie, but I also loved the premise of these two worlds, Carrie and her mother in her world, Carrie trying her best to fit into the school in that world. And then at the center of it are these two wacko women belting at the top of their ranges, you know, matters of life and death. And um, sign me up. Like everything in the Carryverse, logistics of a three-way writing team pre-internet were complicated. And I was living in Los Angeles by that point. And I carved out times, maybe six, eight times a year. I would go back for weeks at a time. And we worked on, and we did the first act. uh, It took us about three years to do act one because... Michael was coming off fame and terms of endearment. Larry was coming off a ghost story as well as other projects. I was in the process of writing Footloose. And so Carrie was our part-time job. That was what we, it wasn't like we were sitting on our hands. We were all torn in many different directions. By 1984, the writers had put together a rough version of Act One on paper, but they needed to see if it worked in front of an audience. They decided to take the leap and stage their rough draft in the form of a workshop reading, a kind of informal staging with a small group of actors performing the songs, script in hand, to potential investors and theatre owners. We did have a couple. Of, we did have a couple of weeks, and the weird thing was, oh, this is a very strange memory to have. We rehearsed for one week, and at the end of that week, I had written the opening ceremony for the 1984 Olympics with Marvin Hamlish. And that the workshop bracketed the opening ceremonies of the Olympics. And so I was directing the workshop. And so we worked until Friday. And then at the end, middle of the afternoon on Friday, I had to run from the studio, get a cab to an east side heliport. I took a helicopter to Kennedy Airport and I flew to Los Angeles woke up the next morning and went to the opening of the 1984 Olympics where a choir of 1,066 voices sang what Marvin and I had written uh, called Welcome. And I sat there for the opening ceremony in the Coliseum. And then the next morning, Sunday, was back on a plane and back in rehearsal on Monday for the second week of rehearsals. And uh, it was it was an amazing experience because we had a room filled with some of the most extraordinary talent. The previous year, the writers had recorded six simple demo tracks around a piano, singing the songs themselves. But the workshop format allowed them to expand the story with a larger cast and some simple descriptions of the action that would take place between each number. And they managed to gather quite a starry cast for the workshop. Included were several big Broadway stars and seasoned performers. Maureen McGovern playing Carrie's mother, Margaret White. Laurie Beachman as the gym teacher, Miss Gardner. Liz Calloway as Carrie's nemesis, Chris. And Laura Dean as Sue. Not to mention an ensemble which included Donna Murphy, later a two-time Tony winner. And Carrie herself. Hi, everybody. 
This is Annie Golden, the first Carrie ever. Yes, the Carrie Musical Workshop. Annie Golden is a legend. <laughs> I am obsessed with her. <laughs> so Annie was the lead singer of punk band The Shirts in the late 70s, and she starred in a stack of classic films like Hair and Desperately Seeking Susan. But most people probably know her best as Mute Prisoner Norma in Netflix's hit series Orange is the New Black. I think they said, you know, um, we're doing a musical of Carrie, and um, right away, I, you know, it was my bubbly, enthusiastic self, and I was like, Oh, that movie. Oh, my God, I love that movie. I never thought the lead or the title role. I just thought, yeah, I'll be sure. I'd, I'd like to be one of the teenagers, you know. And then they said, we'd like you to be Carrie. Annie was actually only two years younger than Maureen McGovern, who is playing her mother. You know, I, w- I was not the age I'd been passing for younger, you know, for a long time in my career. Um, so I have to say, uh, Michael Gore... Uh, composer, Leslie Gore, sister, girl group, 60s. I had done at the bottom line, a show, which was a rock venue here in the uh, premium venue uh, here in New York. I had done um, Leader of the Pack, the Ellie Greenwich story, which was a musical for Broadway. We were ahead of our time because now it was a jukebox musical. It was thought to be an abomination at that time. And it was very popular and it was sold out uh, for its entire run. And I think Ellie Greenwich, her contacts, Jimmy Ivey and the producer who did 16 Candles soundtrack. I was in that clique then suddenly. I came from CBGB's, which was not, you know, which was my scene, but, um, Ellie, Ellie kind of discovered me, um, so I was on the radar then of that creative, you know, uh, click, enclave. I think that's how they found me. I think Michael Gore and Dean Pitchford came to see, um, to see Ellie's musical leader of the pack at the bottom line. Laura Dean, one of the ensemble, had starred in fame as Lisa, the ballet dancer who sings the opening lines of the song, I Sing the Body Electric. She later appeared in early seasons of Friends as Sophie, Rachel's put-upon colleague at Bloomingdale's. I get a lot jumbled up in my head because I did have to audition for Carrie when it was getting ready to go into actual production. So in my mind, yes, I auditioned a lot for Carrie, but I don't think I auditioned for the workshop. Or if I did, it was just like a meeting because it was Dean Pitchford and Michael Gore who wrote the score for fame. So they knew me and they knew my voice and they knew me as an actor. And so um, I think they felt confident with me in the material. I remember thinking that I was going to do the part, the nasty girl part, but then they, they hired Liz Calloway to do that part. And then I was the nice girl, the Sue Snell character, um, the character that Amy Irving played in the movie. And I thought, oh, that's interesting, you know, because m- much of my young adult, late teen and young adult years, I did a whole lot of um, after school specials. They were these TV specials that were like life lessons. And I always played the conniving bitch. And I just kind of got hired a lot to play the bad girl like casting against type, I guess. <laughs> um, anyway, so I was kind of like pleasantly surprised. Oh, they're hiring me to play the nice girl. Great, you know. And Liz Calloway, who was always playing these innocent, you know, young women, she got chosen to be the nasty girl. And it was kind of fun for us to 
get to dig into characters that we don't usually get to play. Julie Cohen, another Broadway performer, had also been a featured vocalist in Fame. When I got the call, it was from Michael or Dean or someone from their office saying, we're doing a workshop of a musical version of Carrie, want to do it? And I was like, I am so in. As well as doing the Carrie workshop during the day, she was also working through the night on a movie shoot with Annie Golden. So the pair of them had a busy schedule. We're already working together on a a trashy uh, B-movie hooker, feminist hooker epic called Streetwalking. Streetwalking? By the way, it, it's it's exactly what you imagine it is. <laughs> she dropped out of high school this morning. Tonight. You're from out of town, aren't you? She's a Times Square hooker. Hey, baby. Baby, you do look good. I think it's ready for a Broadway adaptation. Oh, my God, absolutely. Should we get Lin-Manuel on the phone? Uh, we played hookers together. Phoebe, she played one called Phoebe and mine was Trisha and we were trashy hookers together at night while we were doing the carry workshop during the day. So Annie Golden and I were working very long days during that, but we wanted to do both projects and we managed to stay up all night and do both projects. You know, I was so tired. I just went away going, whew, all right, yeah. Okay, great. All right, next, next. I got to, oh, there's a car waiting. Oh, I got to go, you know, or no. No, I got to get on the subway. Those are the days. I got to get on the subway and uh, and go go down to the Lower East Side. Go, go to Alphabet City. Uh, actually, sharing cabs, sharing a cab from the set of Streetwalking at like eight in the morning, maybe, and getting in a cab and going over to Eight Ninety Studios and having coffee before workshop rehearsal for Carrie. Like we would literally, we literally, there were there were probably only a few nights where we did that, but those nights are really vivid to me and bonding with Penny Golden. Rehearsals for the workshop performance of Carrie took two weeks from start to finish. Yeah, it was short. And I mean, you know, I've been, I've done, a, I did a lot of workshops in the, in the eighties. Um, and lots of times uh, they would come in with no material and basically the actors write the material and that's what, the workshop was for not with Carrie they they came in prepared they had their they had music written and they had lyrics written and I never felt like um I was writing for the writers on that one it was in that way more like working on a movie you know you come together briefly because the first day is music the first day is a marathon of music so the chairs are set up the music stands are set up around the piano um and people and people who are trained read so we all sat around and we learned our music and that's when you get excited because you hear everything and you hear everybody's voices together and um, it was, uh, you know, 10 to 6 every day in the room and if you weren't in the last day's scenes and stuff, uh, you were released early, which was I probably went then to set. Although she'd performed in musicals, Annie was a punk at heart and readily admits that she couldn't read sheet music. So she was still learning musical theatre techniques from the creative team. You know, my, my voice would go and go and go and go until it couldn't go anymore. And then Dean Pitchford was the one who uh, gave me this device where he said, when you're in the closet and you're singing, when you have to, you know, our father who art in heaven. She's talking about a moment in the show when Carrie's ultra-religious mother learns that she's accepted an invitation to the prom and promptly locks her in the wardrobe. He said, when you have to cover, cover your ears, and he helped me find a head voice 
And I remember that. I distinctively remember him giving me that acting choice. And suddenly, suddenly, I wasn't screeching for notes. Suddenly, something transitioned and I had a head voice, which was thank you, thank you. At the end of the process, a semi-stage, script-in-hand performance of Act One of Carrie for a specially invited audience took place at 890 Studios, a famous complex of rehearsal rooms where many classic shows rehearsed, run by Michael Bennett, the director and choreographer of A Chorus Line. Yeah, 890 Studios, that was a place on Broadway and 19th Street, and it was a whole floor of just rehearsal studios, and all the Broadway shows rehearsed there. When my the show that I did my Broadway debut in, which was Doonesbury um, in 1983, so it was like the year before. I remember uh, Cats, the the new show musical Cats was rehearsing down the hall, and The Rink with Cheetah Rivera was rehearsing on down the other hall. And yeah, I mean, if you're right, 890 Studios was like the the rehearsal place. But I remember thinking if a bomb had fallen on 890 Studios that day, musical theater as we know it would cease because everyone was there. When Tommy Toon walked in, I thought I'd have a heart attack. And you can't miss him because he's seven and a half feet tall. Ten-time Tony Award winner Tommy Toon is actually six foot, six and a half inches tall, but we'll let it slide. Ten-time Tony Award winner Tommy Toon. There we go. That's my new vocal (laughs) warm-up. People were really excited about it. I do remember that. At the time, Annie didn't know most of the powerful people in the room, or even the reputation of the creative team, or what was at stake for them. I, I, I'm not sure I even knew who Michael and Dean were, you know, the, uh, the, the power of them, the importance of them. I was just kind of going along and being like, you know, okay, sure, whatever, you know, and, you know, now, now I can tell the youngins, that's Dara Roth. Uh, she, she's the month, she's, she's the go-to gal, you know, she'll, you know, or that, you know, or that's the Nita Landers or that's the, at that time I didn't know who, who was, who was in the room. Um, but, uh, I think there were probably people attached to the movie were in the room, um, you know, in from Hollywood, but it was a packed room and, um, people were excited to see it. And, uh, and in a sense, I was, I was carrying it, which you don't really want to give much, uh, much weight to. You just want to. Uh, do your best and do your job. Now, these workshops are generally private affairs. They're rarely recorded, but as will become a great tradition for Carrie the Musical, someone in the room did indeed sneak in a tape recorder. So in recent years, that recording has emerged online. On the grainy audio file, we can hear Larry Cohen reading the stage directions between each song. He says... What you're going to see and hear today will require your imagination. There are a lot of special effects in our show, thanks to Carrie's very strange gift. Lights explode... Objects levitate, in the air, window slam. Lasers come out of Carrie's fingers. You get the idea. Sorry, finger lasers? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, already the writer's vision of this show is cemented. It's big and it's bonkers. But the colossal scaling up of Carrie was still some years away. I always felt like it was a presentation of the songs. And listening to the recording, I was reminded again, oh, it didn't really have a book yet. In their introduction, the writers describe the choreography as having a dynamic role in the musical, to quote, very 80s and very MTV. Okay, so that side of the brief was certainly carried through right (laughs) through to the Broadway show. It's interesting, actually, that it's stated right from the start that they want this show to be in the same vein as those kind of high-energy teenage shows like Fame and Grease. Yeah, 
So the songs. Uh, there are some songs in this version that didn't make it through to the finished product. One is called Ain't It A Bitch. Uh, it's an early prototype for the opening, In, where the gym teacher barks orders at the teenage girls while they do this high-intensity exercise routine and complain about the difficulty of their lives. I mean, it's quite catchy. Yeah. Very energetic. Some absolute lyrical gems oh, in there. Oh, yes. Yeah. So my favourite line, yeah. which I've pulled out, is, Gee, I wish when I was born that I was born 19. Get to all the good stuff and skip all the crap between. SATs and braces and those tests you'd never pass. Pain in the ass. Incredible. Uh, I'm a fan of, Girls, men will never ask you out unless your body's tight. What if she's right? Wow. <laughs> Eternal question. Great role models. That was the 80s though, wasn't it? Oh, it was a different time. Yeah. It was a different time. So at the end of the song, we're told by the narrator, the group forms a human pyramid. Poor Carrie climbs to the top, causing the whole thing to crumble. And something like that does get attempted in the final production. Yes, it does. Why not? Maureen McGovern's voice is stunning. It's beautiful. It's soaring. The epic end of Act One number, I Remember How Those Boys Could Dance, is suitably sort of crazed, if a slightly slower tempo uh, than the version the fans will know and love. Even at this early stage, it's clear the show is going for very different musical styles to represent Carrie's two worlds. The youthful, dangerous world of the high school and the intense, ultra-religious home life that she shares with her mother. But when it's just the songs, it's not so incongruous. You layer on the choreography, the set design, the costume and everything else... We'll, you'll see what happens. It's certainly a fateful decision that will soon veer out of control. But back to the workshop, and there are some other interesting differences in the early song listing. title track Carrie is familiar but then it segues into a different song called I Can Hear My Heart Annie sounds so young here. She's absolutely adorable. <laughs> Miss Gardner sings a song called It Only Has to Happen Once which eventually becomes Unsuspecting Hearts. And there are some early versions of, again, tracks that will be familiar to Carrie fans. I remember the song, Do Me a Favor, you know, Tommy, lately, I've just not been feeling right. I'm so ashamed of how we've all been treating Carrie White, you know. Am I crazy? Am I something like a dope? I'd never Do 
Tommy Ross, played in the workshop by Todd Graff, has a solo called Tommy's Poem. Interestingly, this song has the same lyrics and the melody as a song in the 2012 revival of the show called Dreamer in Disguise. So it doesn't actually make it to the stage for 26 years. At the end of the reading, there is rapturous applause. The names of the cast are shouted out as they take a bow, and there are whoops and cheers from the small gathered audience. As it fades, one of the writers explains that although Act Two is written, they'll be stopping here at the end of Act One just to give them a tease. Stopping here at the end of the first act of Carrie. Act Two has been completed, but we just wanted to give you the sneak preview of our show. There is a low murmur of laughter as he reminds them that Carrie does indeed get to go to the prom. Carrie becomes Cinderella, all right, he says. Cinderella with a vengeance. But it was real. I thought it was so intriguing that they. So they kind of showed everything in the first act. They had like they checked off all the boxes, like the group number, the high school, the mean girls, uh, the the wounded child, uh, the mother daughter dynamic. uh, the good girl, the good girl and the good boy and the bad girl and the bad boy who are going to be trouble. Um, and the, uh, and of course, uh, the gym teacher, the, uh, uh, the, the champion, uh, the, the mentor to carry. So all of that was in the first act. A final round of applause, then the promise of wine available at the back. And no doubt all the performers ran screaming at the buffet. <laughs> I hope Annie managed to grab a glass sure on the way. <laughs> the three writers were proud of the beginnings of the show that they created. Probably the last time they would feel that for quite a long time. And just like that, the cast of the original Workshop of Carrie went their separate ways. You know, it sometimes is very anticlimactic because you do all this work and you build up and then some, you know, you do a presentation maybe once, maybe twice, and then it's done. And then everybody goes their separate ways. So honestly, in a way, no, I don't remember there being like, uh, you know, it's all like, you just kind of know, okay, well, see you on the next gig, you know? Like all companies, you come together for however long it is. You all work together, you make something magic, you bond, and then and then you split. But we'll always have like that, that moment of magic that we shared. And now it's captured, like I just can't believe. Laura and Julie both look back fondly on working with Annie. She was wonderful. She really, her voice, and she was so, she like, she was so perfect for the role too. She was so vulnerable. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, and her voice. She just had that really just very guttural and vulnerable voice, you know? I was a fan of hers from her punk band, The Shirts. I probably saw The Shirts at CBGB's three or four times, and I'm like, that chick is badass. She was Cyndi Lauper, like, before Cyndi Lauper. And I was like, that voice and, like, her earnestness and her open heart, and so... Getting to work with her on two projects simultaneously, anytime I have crossed paths with her, which is only a couple times, I, we have like bonded on like, right, Carrie and Streetwalk, and we did them at the same time. For Carrie, the future would be rocky, but the workshop cast are still proud to be part of the show's history. Somewhere in a box, I probably have my script too. I do remember working on, on the workshop and 
thinking, wow, this is really special because even though it seems odd to put music to a, a horror film, they were really trying to hone in on the characters and why, what would make the characters sing. And, and it's a kind of a shame that it kind of went so off the rails when they did finally put it up to full production. I do feel proud to have been part of the creative process of such, you know, of that show, of of Carrie. You know, it's it's funny, like I was saying, it's fun now after having left acting um, for the most part to now go back and, and look at like some of the projects I've been involved with and some of the people that I got a chance to work with or, or you know, pretty much anytime now someone mentions Carrie, you know, I can drop like, hey, you know, I was in the first ever musical workshop of that. And most people go like, there was a musical of Carrie. And I go, yeah, there was a musical of Carrie. Silver lace with a blue-gray bodice. That's a line from Dream On. Amazing it's stuck in her head all this time, isn't it? There is something about these songs that does that. Mm. We've been singing them at each other for years now. Yes, <laughs> often when least expected. All requested. (laughs) So what happened next? Uh, We should explain that it's quite normal for the actors who do workshop performances not to end up in the final version of a show. That's what my agent's been telling me anyway. Mm. I mean, often there are several years in between the two. So actors move on to other projects or they just simply age out of roles. In the case of Carrie, Annie had a sense that she wouldn't be playing the role on Broadway. I probably aged out. That's what it was. I knew that I, I... Either wasn't right for it, or I had aged out of it, or and then they went to Royal Shakespeare Company. So when they went there, I said, "Well, that's that money is it's secure. The money is there. They don't have to, you know, they they don't have to grapple for money. It's there. It's supported. It's gonna it's gonna move onwards and upwards. It, it, there's an engine behind it. It can do so. Also, as a businesswoman, I knew that too." And don't worry, we will be delving into exactly how the Royal Shakespeare Company ends up involved in all of this next week. This bare-bones version of Carrie is probably the show in its purest form. It's what existed before all of the future layers of deep artistic visions and complex staging and convoluted plotting were plastered on top of it when it was just a pure musical adaptation of the movie. There is much more dialogue and development between characters. And though it's a little bit stilted, it does help the plot make sense. The narration from the writers gives a sense that Carrie's world's going to be properly filled out. We'll see an interesting but realistic contrast between her lives at home and school. And by the end of the reading, things were looking hopeful for a full-scale production. It was wonderful to hear our work come back to us. And it was very, very thrilling, to be honest, and to be in that room. And then on that Friday, that following Friday, there was... Uh, we were packed. We had done the, the workshop down at Michael Bennett's studios at 890 Broadway. And we set up, they set up all the chairs and every chair was filled. People were all around the edges. They all wanted to see the first act of this. And on the basis of that, we got our first producers. And so by 1986, our stage is set. Carrie the Musical had its writer, the guy who wrote the hit movie. It had a composer and lyricist, the award-winning team behind the Fame franchise. Now it needed a visionary director and a choreographer to work together and bring Carrie's world to the stage. But crucially, it needed a talented cast to bring Stephen King's iconic characters to life. Already, Carrie was the talk of Broadway. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Coming up on Out for Blood. Exactly half the cast would be British and exactly half the cast would be American. 
My name's Lindsay Hately. Sally Ann Triplett. Charlotte Amboise. She said to, muttered to her assistant something about not wanting anyone who was out of breath. So I didn't breathe for a whole audition. She came in the room with her glasses and she just like tipped her glasses down and didn't say anything and just stared because Terry Hands was re-choreographing the opening number. This is dodgy disco below the hotel. And we just go in and throw shapes. I mean, it was Gene Anthony Wright with Leroy from Fame. I mean, hello, people. They were just sat there with their warm pints looking at us. We're throwing these shapes. From very early on, the writing was on the wall that, that it wasn't, the fit wasn't right. We stood in the back of the audience going, no, 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 please, oh, no, 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 you're sending all the wrong signals. I am the ironmonger and I got this huge sledgehammer. Alpha Blood is a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. For more information about us and the podcast, please visit us online at bpn.fm slash alphablood. And if you enjoyed Alpha Blood, please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you downloaded us from. If you're a fan of Carrie, we've been posting a ton of behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and more on our socials. Find us at Alpha Blood Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, and Alpha Blood Pod on Twitter. Alpha Blood was hosted and produced by me, Chris Adams. And me, Holly Morgan. Sound engineering and editing by Tom Moores. Paddy Jervis is our audio consultant. Original music by Odin Orn Hillmarson and artwork by Rebecca Pitt. Thanks this week to Dean Pitchford, Annie Golden, Laura Dean, Julie Cohen, Bev Vincent and Rich Hawkins. We had a blast talking to those ladies from the workshop. Julie Cohen, also known as Jules Nation, has a band with her husband. They're very good. We had a listen yes, to them. Yes, they're brilliant. They're called The Nations. And Laura Dean has a YouTube cooking channel called Micromanager with tips for making delicious food in a cramped kitchen. Mm. Mm, perfect for when you get home after a late night destroying your school prom. Delicious. Mm. And Bev Vincent's work with and about Stephen King can be found at bevvincent.com. He also edits the long-running newsletter newsfromthedeadzone.com. Uh, you can find links to all of that, plus other great stuff in our show notes on your podcast app. Uh, Tom? Yeah? Uh, we would go bowling if you really cared. I do. You don't? I do. <laughs> See you next time. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.